this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today I'm going to take a first look at Wilds of Eldraine. So I want to be very clear for those of you who are listening to this anytime after the live recording that while at the time that you're listening to this, I have probably played with Wilds of Eldraine, uh, at the time that this is being recorded, I have not. I have uh, read over the spoiler, but I have not played any games. I've uh, done some studying, some uh, you know grouping by various things to get a sense of what's going on. But it's not easy to kind of mentally process how an entire set is going to play out without seeing any of the cards in play. So this is going to be uh, very speculative, but... This is going to go over kind of some of my like thought process and the stuff that I look at early on in making sense of what's going on as part of my preparation for my first games. So, as always, uh, the notes are available to follow along at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes. So, uh, getting into it, the first thing that uh, stands out to me is the set really strongly encourages and uh, even more so enables flashing or playing multicolor the fixing at common is really good but it's not like dual land fixing it's like five color fixing so um like in green you have uh brave the wilds which is the one mana lay of the land search your library for basically and put it in your hand type card that you can bargain to turn a land into a three three and then uh, Return from the Wilds, which is a three-mana modal card that gives you like a land and a creature or some other effect. But most importantly, it searches your library for a land, puts it into play, and then gives you some other trinket. And then Root Rider Fawn is a one and a green, one three that taps for a green. Or you can spend a colorless and tap it to get a mana of any color. So like one three taps for a green for two mana has like that's just a card that's a playable accelerator that exists this is a strictly better version that can uh, ramp or fix so three different high quality green common fixing cards and then colorless has prophetic prism the reprint uh straight up two mana cantrip tap mana uh tap it and a colorless get a mana of any color um, Scarecrow Guide, 2-1 Reach for 2, that once per turn you can spend a mana of any color to get a mana of any color. So that's in the like Mana Worker type space, and it's a relatively good one. Like 2-1 Reach for 2 isn't good, but it's not embarrassing as a way to like make your mana work. And that like colorless filter into anything is very hard fixing. Like Your mana just works so well if you have one of those things in play. So... Instead of like drawing a card like you would with Prophetic Prism and just having this set up, you have a 2-1 body. Obviously, if you block with it, you lose your fixing, so it's nowhere near as like robust as Prophetic Prism for fixing your mana, but it's a playable part of a solution to making mana work in general. And then we have both Crystal Grotto and Evolving Wilds. Those are... Uh, two of the strongest like five color fixing common lands we uh, see, um, Crystal Grotto is the uh, DMU Scry one, and then um, you can pay a colorless to get a man of any color, and then Evolving Wilds of course sex to uh, find any basic land. So like, it's interesting if you compare the fixing in this set to like DMU. DMU has 
Crystal Grotto in addition to a bunch of common duelians. And here you have Evolving Wilds instead of all the common duels, which means there are going to be far fewer like lands that fix your colors per pack, but but like you have better like all of the fixing isn't like I talk about doing like your mana by counting the number of cards you have in your deck that can give you a source of each color. So like a dual like a 17 land deck has 17 total sources, uh, assuming that it's 17 basics. So your mana is like nine eight. If you have two dual lands, each dual land adds one total colored mana source to your deck. So now you have 19. So now you're like 10 nine instead. If you're playing a three-color deck, then Evolving Wilds is effectively plus two colored sources, right? Because you're turning a basic that only gives you one color into Evolving Wilds, which gives you any of your three. Um, but if you're playing a five-color deck, then Evolving Wilds is plus four colored sources. And so when all of the fixing cards, literally every single one of Brave the Wilds, Return from the Wilds, Root Rider, Fawn, Prophetic Prism, Scarecrow Guide, Crystal Grotto, and Evolving Wilds, all of those are plus four sources in a five-color deck instead of plus one source in a five-color deck. So this is a format where the mana fixing for two-color decks isn't very good. It's relatively inefficient because it fixes for five colors uh, instead. And there's not like a ton of it. So it's not like every two-color deck is going to have a piece of fixing. But because the fixing that exists isn't relatively powerful for two-color decks, it means that it's going to go to people who are trying to play more than two colors. And the more colors you're playing, the better rate you're getting on your fixing. So what this means is if fixing isn't highly contested at your table, then you can get multiple of these things and then you can actually support four or five colors. If fixing is highly contested, um, that means a lot of people are taking it. That means probably a lot of people are uh, like one or more likely two colors with a splash or even two splashes since like the nature of these cards is that, you know, like if you're say a red green duck and you're splashing a blue card and your fixing is like two prophetic prisms, a crystal grotto and a scarecrow guide then it's not any easier for you to cast your blue card than it would be to cast a card of one of the other colors you're not playing. So you'll see two color decks that are like uh, splashing maybe the other three, which is like one or two cards of each of the colors that aren't their primary colors and maybe no basic lands of those colors. That's the thing that could happen. Uh, that's the thing that's most likely to happen with the advent the gold adventure cards. So... Adventures from Wild Wilderings are back in this set, but there are adventures that have different color uh, adventures than the color of the main card. And so that means that you can splash and reliably be able to cast half of the card and then like find fixing to cast the other half. Uh, those cards are only... There are no commons that are that. There's one uncommon of each color pair that works that way. Then there are also a couple cycles of uh, gold, uh, just like straight up gold uncommons um, that you could splash. Unlike original Eldraine, this set doesn't have 
any monocolor incentives. There are no cards that cost tons of colored mana symbols. There's no adamant. There's no, like, a bunch of hybrids. Um, this is more of a normal set in terms of, like, the way that mana works, but with a little, like, just a touch more gold than normal because of the fact that they're, like, uh, I think two uncommon gold cycles in addition to the uncommon adventure cycle and then this like pretty good fixing so i think the just like the nature of fixing in this format is going to significantly inform the way that it plays and the way the decks are built and that's going to cascade into some of the other stuff i'm going to be talking about so that, that was the first thing that i think is important to have as background so the other thing uh adventure is a very important mechanic, uh, especially in limited, because uh, it's just kind of built in card advantage and card advantage uh, matters a lot in limited. The way that the adventure cards are constructed in this set, some of them are like kind of normal rate aggressive creatures that also have an adventure, but the adventure either costs more than the creature or only really does something in some kind of specific situation that's unlikely to happen before you get to the point of the game where you would want to cast the creature. And so there's this trade-off between casting your creature and skipping the adventure to get uh, to like curve out and get on board versus not casting your creature until you've used the adventure and then playing the creature to get the most value out of your card. So adventures kind of really amplify the extent to which there's this theme of curve or tempo or playing the board or aggression or however you want to conceptualize it versus value. And to me, I think that how you engage with the question of which of those two things do you want is really going to be the heart of uh, this format and arguably uh, magic or limited in general. Um, but I think that uh, this format really like hammers that point home, given uh, like the way that you can get greedy with your fixing, the way that you can be more or less greedy with the value that you get out of your uh, adventure cards and some other things. So given that the cards can play differently in terms of, uh, you know, the same card could be used as a value card or as a the value secondary here if i draw it late i'll get value out of it but mostly i want to curve out kind of card that to me raised the question about like okay so what do the aggressive decks look like in this format how much pressure are people going to be under am i expecting to be trying to grind out the maximum value for my adventures or am i trying to just like play to the board and so the first thing I wanted to check was what the one drops looked like. And the answer is every color has what looks to me to be a pretty pushed one drop that can play pretty aggressively at common. There's exactly one, dro one drop in every color. All of them look like they are likely playable. Some of it's gonna sh depend on exactly how the play patterns shake out and everything, but for the most part, they look strong to me. And then there's also Ginger Brute, which is a reprint that you're likely familiar with. Uh, one, one haste artifact creature that is a food. You can sack it as a food to gain life. And then you can also pay a mana to make it only blockable by haste creatures. That's 
a pretty compelling start right out of the gate um, for being able to play an aggressive deck, especially with, you know, the, uh, Evolving Wilds being the only common tapped land. It doesn't look like people are going to be taking a whole bunch of time to set up in their, like, two-color decks. They're going to be able to, like, kind of start curving out right away. And then there are three uh, two-drops in every color, basically three three-drops in every color. Some of them are uh, aggressive, some of them are not. Looks kind of normal and balanced there. But notably, uh, Celebration is a very aggressive mechanic. That's uh, a mechanic where... If two or more non-land permanents enter the battlefield under your control this turn, your creature's better. Uh, obviously, that almost always is going to trigger only on your turn. So anytime you have a mechanic that makes a creature better on your turn, uh, that's the creature attacks better than it blocks. Um, and those mechanics in Limited push pretty highly toward the format being aggressive. So you have Celebration... You have good uh, one-drops, you have good untapped mana, so it certainly looks like you can build aggressive decks. And then given what I said about the presence of five color and the presence of gold cards and the presence of like this you know, value-based adventure stuff, especially a lot of the uncommon uh, adventure um, gold cards are like a removal spell and then a creature in some capacity, so nice clean two-for-ones there. There's, you know, pretty clear building blocks for being able to build um, kind of to whatever pace of game you might be looking for. Presumably with a lot more experience, it might become clear that uh, one way or the other is stronger, uh, but I, I really can't speculate. There are 11 commons and 5 uncommons with the bargain mechanic. That's a new mechanic in this set that allows you to sacrifice an artifact, enchantment, or token when you cast a spell to get uh, an additional effect or to decrease its casting cost or something like that. Bargain is notable uh, because sometimes the fact of paying the bargain cost is beneficial to you rather than detrimental. And so... Um, yeah, there, there are going to be some decks that are looking for cards with bargain so that they can sacrifice uh, mostly enchantments at times when they want those enchantments to be sacrificed. There's a new mechanic called rolls. There are six different rolls. They are different aura tokens. Um, you can only have one of them that you control on a creature at a time. One of them is uh, the cursed roll, which is a drawback that will sometimes be uh, put on your own creature. Bargain is a way that you can sacrifice that to get rid of the curse and make your creature better. There are also multiple sagas where the final chapter is an effect that you do not want. And if you can sacrifice the saga before the last chapter, uh, you are better off. So if you have some of those sagas, you would like to find some bargain cards to sacrifice the sagas before you get to the final part. And also, there is a bonus sheet of reprints. All of the reprints on this bonus sheet are enchantments. One of them is Hatching Plans at Uncommon, which is an enchantment that draws three cards and you sacrifice it, um, or when it dies, when it leaves the when it leaves the battlefield, when it goes to the graveyard from the battlefield. And so, uh, Hatching Plans is another card that would make you want to have a way to sacrifice 
your enchantments. So sometimes you're going to be looking for ways to make things to sacrifice to your bargain cards. Otherwise, you're going other times you're going to be having a card that really wants a way to sacrifice it, and you're going to be looking for bargain cards to let you do that. Um, if you're looking for this, blue and green have the most bargain cards, followed by black and white, and red has the fewest. Note that while bargain gives you a way to sacrifice things, those things are only artifacts, enchantments, and tokens. There is an uncommon red threaten. There is also an uncommon, I think, artifact that threatens. Bargain will not let you sacrifice a creature that you steal unless that creature is an artifact or token. So if you're trying to do the steal and sack thing, you're going to have to find another plan uh, for the sacrifice most of the time. A lot of the bonus sheet cards are like weird constructed cards that don't really matter, but it's still like a full bonus sheet of exclusively enchantments. Several of them are very powerful and limited. Enchantments are going to be more significant than uh, they are in most limited formats, which means that answers to enchantments are going to be better than usual. Given that, there's relatively little enchantment removal in the set. Break the Spell is a white common. Uh, it's single white mana, instant, destroy target enchantment. If a permanent you controlled or a token was destroyed this way, draw a card. I think this, this is a main deckable card. It is the only instant that destroys an enchantment in the set. And in addition to being an out against opposing strong bonus sheet cards, it is also a way to uh, blow up your own enchantments that you don't want. Uh, you know, I was talking about how you would want to get rid of, want bargain to get rid of some enchantments. You can do that with break the spell instead and cantrip. Also, these roll things, most of them are token enchantments that give creatures plus one, plus one. And so uh, you can use break the spell as a combat trick to remove an enchantment from your opponent's creature to make it one, one smaller, um, which could lead to uh, winning a combat and drawing a card. So a lot of good uses for break the spell. That's a card that I think uh, might be easy to miss if you don't like if the first time you open a pack of this set you don't have full context on how important enchantments are so that's one to really keep an eye out for outside of that the other enchantment removal that exists uh, there's bear down which is a sorcery speed naturalized that is an adventure on an uncommon called stromkirk vanguard that's like i don't know some bigger creature not really important to this point um, there's Troublemaker Oof, which is a um, green 2-2 uh, that you can bargain, and if you bargain, you get a naturalize. There's Spider Food, which is a sorcery speed, three mana, kill an artifact enchantment or flyer and make a food token. And then there's Shatter the Oath, which is a five mana black removal spell that uh, kills a creature or enchantment and gives you something for it, I think. So relatively few ways to kill enchantments. Um, that is the full list there's nothing else that does it i believe there are stated color pair archetypes um i'm not going to list them all they're very easy to google they look relatively soft to me for the most part the black white theme for example is enchantments going to your graveyard from the battlefield matters and yeah 
you might draft a deck that does some of that but like it's hard for me to imagine that dictating like you know all of the cards in my deck work toward this goal they're like the blue white theme is tap opposing creatures and like you can get some synergies that make you value tapping your opponent's creatures a little bit more highly and you can like draft towards some stuff there but i see these more as like it's more likely going to be you know like a four to ten card package in your deck rather than like something where your whole deck is drafted around it the way that like in say phyrexia all be one you might have like almost every card in your deck uh, references oil or more likely you know 20 of the cards in your deck are an artifact in your like white black artifact deck or something here i think that like you know like i said i i think that the themes will matter your deck will need to pay a little bit of attention to taking advantage of them but i think that the driving force in what's going on is going to be a lot more like what is your strategic role and game plan and much less i have my whole deck revolves around this synergy and when i say strategic role and game plan i'm getting back to what i was talking about before about how you engage with like tempo versus attrition or like aggression versus value or like the concept of inevitability broadly these are all different ways of getting at the same idea basically are you the beat down or are you the control and how are you like drafting to do that and how are you drafting to line your deck up against opposing people who are focused on each of those things i don't think that like knowing or really focusing on the like two color archetype themes is going to be that big of a deal especially given that i think a lot of the decks are going to splash and that really like blurs where you are on this whole like two color archetype thing yeah like just given that they seem you know not all that deeply supported or not all that significant like blue black is fairies but they're like i don't know three-ish cards or something that care about having more fairies and the payoffs are like when you play a fairy your opponent takes the damage or something like that might not be the most extreme payoff but the most extreme payoffs probably are rare um it, it's it's a lot of like your card works very slightly better if you go not very far out of your way to do a little bit of this thing or whatever so the themes are things that i'm sure will come up there will be decks that do it but if it's not like natural and obvious to do it, then you're not, I don't think you're going to be missing out a lot, basically. That's what I got from my first look. So now I'm going to turn it over to chat for any uh, questions and comments that they have. While uh, that's happening, uh, I want to thank the newest uh, patron at patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. William, thank you for the support. And anyone else who is, uh, you know, looking to support the podcast, as always, please check out patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. All right, getting into questions. It seems like a few of the signposts on commons are very powerful and pull you into the set archetype much more than commons and rares. That sounds totally plausible. I didn't study them very deeply. Yeah, I, I, I do, you know, like, obviously what I was saying about the archetypes is... A broad generalization, I'm sure that the way it's going to play out 
for you know one or two of the archetypes you're probably going to end up like really leaning into its thing pretty often and then others are often going to be you know a miss to some degree it's you know it's it's never going to be totally extreme or black and white or whatever uh th this was more speaking to my sense of the general direction compared to other sets are there any graveyard slash loopable cards? Um, so I assume that this is a me-focused question on ways to loop your deck. Nothing stood out to me as a good way to go about doing that. Any particular cards I'm looking forward to playing with? Wasn't the primary thing that I was thinking about when I was looking at stuff. My first thought is like I'll probably enjoy playing like the uncommon adventures that like kill a thing and then give me a creature i guess like anytime you can actually like do the like bargain away something that you didn't want is going to be pretty fun and i'm interested in kind of seeing how a lot of the like roll stuff actually plays um that stuff is some of the stuff that's like hardest to speculate on without having seen it at all are there any commonly reprinted effects that I think are going to go up and down in value in this set? Mostly just in sham removal being better than usual is the only thing that, you know, really stood out there. Feeling skeptical of celebration coming together on the assumption that I'm wrong. Uh, what does that mean about the format? That it's aggressive? Yeah. So celebration is definitely an aggressive mechanic. I think if you're trying to do the celebration thing, the easiest way to do it is with creatures that make rolls when they enter, because that's just like two permanents in one card and like those are mostly going to be like pretty aggressive cards anyway i i do think that like celebration is going to be a thing there are like some red creatures that make treasures or rats or whatever and some like white creatures that make rolls and the you know the two mana celebration guys are like pretty good aggressive creatures if you celebrate so um yeah i i think that red white celebration aggro like i have no reason to believe that it won't be a thing and it will put meaningful pressure on people i think that i am lower on hatching plans than uh discussion in chat like the idea that you should highly prioritize it and play it with like only two bargain cards or something uh doesn't seem right to me going down a card and spending two mana uh to like draw three cards someday is not that great and with only two you're reasonably likely to draw your cards in the wrong order where you've used your bargain thing before you draw hatching plans or where you don't draw your bargain and having a high enough density of bargain that it's very easy to sacrifice your hatching plans consistently doesn't sound trivial I think that there will be decks that can use hatching plans, but I don't think it's like everyone's going to be like fighting for this and successfully doing it all the time or something. What are my thoughts on the cursed roll? How do I expect it to play out? I think that it, like a lot of the cards with the cursed roll, so that's the thing that like makes a creature a one one. I think that that's likely going to be pretty good. Like it's an object that you can sacrifice to bargain that you got for like negative mana. And you can also pair it with anything else that can put rolls on things to like overwrite it with a different role. So um, I, I think that like the cursed roll stuff is going to be like pretty strong and pretty fun and limited.
uh, it's certainly, you know, the kind of thing that I like where it's like, hey, jump through this like pretty small hoop and then get a pretty nice payoff. And it's going to be like pretty simple and pretty satisfying. Any thoughts on the cast a spell with mana value five or higher sub theme? Uh, not sure what a good curve looks like for it. Well, mostly you're accomplishing that via adventures where the card has the ability to be cast for five or more and for less than that. And so you have a like pretty flexible curve. And I think that you need to like prioritize those things in that archetype. And that's that's basically the answer to like what's going on here and how do you like have a real curve while having that theme necro and limited will still be something you use removal for absolutely not if your opponent plays necropotence the last thing you want to do in limited is kill it then they just get to draw a bunch of cards and get their draw step back if they have necro make them keep it and try to pressure them would you consider playing multicolored adventure cards just for the adventure part i i haven't really evaluated all of them to see if there's like an adventure that is a good spell on its own i think that there are some that are like playable but not great but i would also expect that like roughly every time i'm doing that i have like at least one way to cast the other side just because it's so easy to do that like find a crystal grotto or a prophetic prism at some point in the draft do you think low young hero will meaningly incentivize low toughness like the ring bear incentivized low power uh, yeah, to some extent. I don't remember exactly how many cards make Young Hero. Young Hero is a role where when this creature attacks, it gets a plus one, plus one counter if its toughness is below three or three or below. I'm not sure. And, you know, certainly if you have like multiple cards that do that thing, then you'll want to draft for it a little bit. But uh, I, I don't remember like how many of those cards there are at each commonality or whatever. Some discussion about forced fruition on the bonus sheet. Forced Fruition is, so Forced Fruition is a six mana enchantment. Whenever your opponent plays a spell, they draw seven cards. It is a playable, it is an effective way to win some games of Limited. Uh, there are, it puts a pretty hard cap on the number of spells your opponent can cast after you resolve it. It is very much not my kind of card in that it is horrific when you're behind and uh, slightly dangerous otherwise. So uh, I, I think that while it is possible to win games with Forged Fruition, I am very unlikely to ever put it in a deck. Will you be approaching drafting any differently at the beginning of the set with the Vegas tournament coming up? No. Um, any thoughts on the rat tokens? Since they can't block, they function kind of like decayed tokens in that they uh, just like make the set a bit more aggressive. Obviously, they're different than decayed tokens in that they don't go away, um, and so they keep attacking. There's also pretty good support for them um, in the bonus sheet with stuff like Raid Bombardment and Goblin Bombardment, and I think maybe another one that like there, there are just some things. Oh, there's also like Intangible Virtue or whatever. Yeah, I, I don't know. They seem... Um, they're also, like, tokens for bargaining. They they, they seem uh, significant. Um, having good ways to, uh, you know, block them is going to be somewhat important. Also, yes, uh, Forest Fruition suffers a lot from the fact that while there isn't a ton of enchantment destruction, people are incentivized to actually play it. And if you Forest Fruition your opponent into 
an enchantment removal spell, and then they kill your forced version, you are basically dead. My my advice is that you generally should not put forced version in your deck in case that wasn't obvious from my statement that I wouldn't do it myself. There's some questions about like the best cards in the bonus sheet or whatever. I honestly didn't pay any attention to rares or mythics on the bonus sheet. Uh, I just wanted to see roughly what's going on with the bonus sheet, how it would affect limited. Um, uh, again, like similar to how I was not really looking for what are the best commons, I definitely wasn't looking for like what are the most unbeatable bonus sheet cards. Did I see enough support for the uh, CMC 5 plus archetype in blue green to be competitive? Yeah, I mean, adventure by itself is potentially enough support. Like if no one else is looking for those cards and you just have some cards that like, are fine and, uh, for less mana and can be cast for more mana um, and you get to a late game and start getting payoffs for that, I imagine you do powerful things and like there is some ramp and fixing. So, uh, you know, a blue-green big stuff deck, like it's, it's not hard to imagine a blue-green X big stuff deck with a bunch of adventures like having a good late game and being able to get to the late game sometimes. All right, uh, I think that's going to wrap it up. I will be participating in the Early Access event uh, tomorrow. Um, so if anyone wants to watch uh, my first day of drafting, be sure to tune in for that. And so uh, if you are listening to this later, don't find out that I was doing this thing and want to check out, see how I approached the first drafts. Um, check out my uh, personal YouTube channel for that. That's youtube.com slash at Samuel H. Black. Uh, yeah, that, that's going to be it for now. Uh, looking forward to seeing how this set plays out for real and uh, figuring out what of this I was potentially right or wrong about and uh, reevaluating things and getting into the individual archetypes such as they are in the weeks ahead so thanks for listening and i will be back uh next week as always bye for now prepare for light speed